All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We come again this morning to the same passage we've been in. We're going to start reading at verse 9. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. I pray, Lord, that you would show us mercy, that you would show us your heart, and that you would allow, Lord, that in the midst of all that we do, that Christ would be honored and held honorable by us. Lord, transform us by your grace and for your glory, and teach us to love you, and because we love you, to love one another. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We tend to think that the mark of greatness is our outward prestige, the size of our ministry, if we're churchy people, or the way that the world notices our work. But God sees the heart. He alone looks on the inward parts, and he honors that which is unseen by men. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's the fact of the world that we must understand if we're to please the Father. We cannot understand the heart of another, but we can certainly understand our own and seek to serve the Lord in faithfulness within the bounds of our own hearts. Our motives are important. And the writer of Hebrews points out that the actions of the church in Jerusalem demonstrate that they've honored the Lord with their actions. And he points out the specific thing that they have done which has honored the Lord and which God will himself honor in return. Look again at verse 10. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So he starts off calling this a labor of love. And he talks about how this labor of love is something that God sees, that God applauds, and that God will reward. That God is not unjust to forget the things that they have done. And he's speaking about the idea that this church has long been known as a church that gives sacrificially in life in regards to how it cares for one another. From the very beginning of the New Testament church, the church in Jerusalem had manifested this obedience. They had walked in unity, they had worked in unity, they had given sacrificially to one another, and that Unity became something that the world noticed. Look with me at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. 
speaking about the brand new church. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, it says this. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this is the pattern that the church in Jerusalem had begun in the earliest days of the church. Now this is not to advocate socialism or communism or to say that you owning property is something that God frowns on. That's not the case. That's not the point. That's not what this is teaching. What this is teaching us is that the church in Jerusalem was begun in a very special time. There were very special circumstances that were happening. And in response to their circumstances and the things that were in their lives, God had laid on their heart an obedience to do what was necessary to help those who remained in Jerusalem. Remember that when the church was begun on the day of Pentecost... It was a feast time, and there were many, many, many people who had come into Jerusalem for the sake of the Jewish feasts. And God poured out His Spirit over the city, and 5,000 men, including their families, were saved in that day. And they opted to remain in a place where they did not live. They opted to stay there because that's where the teaching about Jesus was. And as they remained in Jerusalem, they didn't have a livelihood, they didn't have any place to be, they didn't have anything that they could reliably count on to eat. It was a remarkable circumstance. And so God pressed on the hearts of those who lived in Jerusalem to give of themselves to care for those in need during this time. It was a special set of circumstances. And as it was a special set of circumstances, it required a special sort of response And that special sort of response was extravagant, and more than being extravagant, it was noticed. And we see several times in the the beginning days of the church this statement that they sold what they had, they brought it to the apostles, they laid it at their feet, it was distributed to those who had need. We find them caring for the widows in their midst, this is why we have deacons, if you remember in chapter 6. There was a dispute over the distribution of the food and the money and the things that were going on. And so the apostles appointed the seven deacons to oversee this. That's the role of the deacon, to care for those, to to be that hands-on ministry, while the apostles gave themselves to the teaching and the instruction in the Word of God. And so we find these things going on that are all around these circumstances that were peculiar to the church in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice that as the churches in the rest of the world were founded, where they had similar sets of circumstances or something that was akin to it, the scripture points out that they emulated the church in Jerusalem. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. So 1 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 13, says this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, 
Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their own sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So one of the things that Paul points out the church in Thessalonica was imitating the church in Judea was in its persecutions. But we also find later on that they had also imitated the church in Judea in their caring for the saints. And it was this idea that they saw it and they said, man, that's beautiful. That's not something that the people in the world are used to. That's not something that the people in the world can look at and say, oh, of course they're taking care of each other. That's what we always do. Amen? Why is it that that we as the people of God are called to love one another with, with power and with display and with faithfulness. What does Jesus tell us? Because by that love, all men will know what? That you are my disciples. Now, would it speak to all men that we are the disciples of Christ if everybody loved that way? Not at all. Jesus said, make sure you do this because it's going to be an extraordinary thing. Make sure that you love one another with power and with purpose because it will stand out in the eyes of the world. They will see it and they will mark you as people who love each other and who love each other because of me. Because, don't miss this, the driving force for our love for each other is the love that we bear for God. Okay? It is the reality that God says, if you love me, you will love each other. If you love me, you will demonstrate how you love me by how you care for each other. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is Paul giving them as a key idea which will guide and guard their entire lives, but especially the manner in which they love each other? You do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do it for the glory of the Father. What you do unto one another, you do because of your relationship with God. Now, it's important for us to note that if your primary reason for doing good to somebody is that you just really like them, well, that's not exactly what's being spoken about here. I'm glad that you like them, and I'm glad that you want to do nice things for them because they're nice people. That's all well and good. 
But that's not specifically what we're speaking of here. What we're speaking of here is this supernatural reality wherein God gives you a love for somebody that you may not necessarily share a whole lot of common interests with. That God gives you a love for somebody that wouldn't necessarily be the person that you would seek out in a crowd. And he gives you this love for them because they are a child of the king. Because they are your brother or sister in Christ. It's this idea that God says, I am going to knit your hearts together solidly. I am going to make you a family in the most real and profound sense of the word possible. I'm going to make you love each other because the love that you bear for one another is a reflection of the fact that you have been altered. What is our natural tendency towards God apart from the the saving efficacious power of the Holy Spirit in us. What is our natural tendency towards God? We push him away. We hate him. What then would be our natural tendency towards anybody else who loves God? We would push them away and hate them. So the fact that God has given us a love for people that love him says what about us? He's changed us. He's made our hearts warm towards Him. He's given us something that we did not possess. So the one thing that binds us all together is Christ. Now, it's nice when a church is filled with people who have have a lot of common interests. It's delightful for me on Wednesday nights when the ladies come in and do their crafting just to hear them chattering, to hear them talking about all sorts of things. And it's nice to know that there are friendships being forged, that there are bonds being made which are beyond what we would consider church, that genuine friendship and affection is being solidified. That's a good thing. It's a good thing when that's present in a body. But it's not the best thing. If I had to choose between that, which is delightful, and people who have nothing in common, who choose to love each other because the one thing they have in common is Christ, I'm going to take that one. Because that one brings glory and honor to Christ above everything else. That one binds us together in the name of Jesus. And it shows us that he overcomes all of the barriers that we ourselves tend to erect. We divide ourselves along ways that people look. Along the clothes that they tend to wear. Along the music that we listen to. Along the activities that we enjoy. We divide ourselves in so many ways that are completely contrary to Scripture. What the scripture teaches us is that as God binds us together in Christ, all of those barriers come down. Jesus himself has broken down the middle wall of separation between us and God. And inviting us all into the presence of the Father, he has also broken down the walls of separation between us. If you are found in Christ, and if you are a part of the family of God, then every single other person on the planet, whoever was, who is, or whoever will be, who also belongs to Christ, is your family. They are 100% your brother or sister in Christ. And that's an important thing for us to remember. That's an important thing for us to keep hold of because that reality is very startling to people who only identify with others according to common interests and common desires. When you can come alongside somebody that the world looks at and says, I don't quite understand how you guys became friends. 
I don't quite understand why you guys call each other brother when you're very different people. I don't quite understand why you are so tightly bound to this person. Somebody help me understand. That gives you an opportunity to lay open the love that God has given to you because it is such a foreign, strange concept. It's something that God puts into us and allows us as people of the King to actually do that is a silent testimony that will call attention to it if we do it right. Now, this kind of affection can be faked for a while, but not indefinitely. For if we do what we do to be noticed by men, to receive accolades or power or prestige or worldly wealth, when that dries up, we will step back. So those who dive into a church because there's people in the church that they think will somehow promote their career, when that doesn't happen, they're likely to step away from the church. When people dive into a church because the church is always willing to give them something, when the church can't give them something, they're going to find someplace else to get what they're looking for. This is always true. So when we understand that dynamic, we need to recognize that there is a calling in our lives to recognize that occasionally you will find falseness even in you. You'll find fakeness in you. You'll find pretense in you. And when you do, your response should be to repent of it. When you do, your response should be to say, Lord, please forgive me, please change me, please help me, and please push me into a deeper, dynamic, powerful relationship with your body, with the people to whom you have knit me together, so that that sin might be rooted out and eradicated. You see, God knows and honors the hearts of the one who loves and serves because of the love that has been given unto him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Now it's true that we love him only because he first loved us. Apart from God's power changing our hearts, nobody seeks after him, nobody loves him, nobody. And the scripture says, nobody. But remember, somebody else is not you. And the flesh loves only the flesh and loves only itself by nature. So if you are capable of loving somebody not for what they can give you, but because there is a love in you just for them, because they love God also, that is something that God has given you. You love them because God loved you first. You love them because God gave you a heart that is alive. It causes us to seek ways in which we can serve the body, and by serving the body, serve the Lord. That love is something that only God can give. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 16. First John 3, starting at verse 16, we find these words. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So right away, John puts the stakes in deep. And he tells us that the love that honors God is a love that dies to self. Lay down our lives for the sake of the brethren. Put aside our preferences, put aside our wants, put aside our things, and 
Give unto the body because God gave himself for the body. Verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. So one of the benefits of loving in this fashion is that God gives us comfort and confirmation of our own salvation. This becomes very strong consolation because we can look at our relationships ourselves and say, there's not really any practical reason why I should love this person. There's not anything that would, by, by the flesh and by our own set of desires, make us friends. We're just different people from different worlds with different interests, and he listens to that weird thumping music that I can't stand. Or he listens to that crazy classical stuff, and I hate that stuff. Or whatever else the thing might be. He reads those strange books. Whatever the thing might be, God gives us a love for people that we wouldn't normally love. He gives us a love for people that are not necessarily the people that we would be attracted to. And he does this because it honors him. He does this because it demonstrates him. It demonstrates his glory. And in doing that, we recognize and are assured in our own hearts that something strange is going on here, something outside of us. We have been altered. Verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So John says, you want to have your heart assured before God? Love the brethren. Love them in word. Love them in deed. Love them in practice. Love them in how you engage with them. Love the body of Christ because it is the body of Christ. And this is the powerful condemnation that the devil would love to lavish on us that we don't. So don't give him the opportunity. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him the chance to say, ah, you don't really love them. Instead, let your heart be assured before God. Show them by how you live your life, by how you engage, by how you are are committed to the body, that you do indeed love the body, and that by loving the body, you're demonstrating that you do indeed love Christ. And John says, this will be a great consolation to your heart. This will be a great comfort to your soul. This will be something that the Holy Spirit will hold up as a shield when the devil condemns you. Because, what's he say? God is greater than your heart, and he knows the truth. So the devil says these things, and you can look back, and maybe you'll take the blow once or twice and go, oh, you're right, I I must not be God's child. And then the Spirit says, now look, look at this, pay attention to this. Look at how you love this person. Look at how you've engaged with the body. Look at the things that are going on here. Look at the changes that have been made in you. And you will see the joy and the peace and the consolation from God overcoming that condemnation that your heart wants to make. That's why Joshua, or Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and dreadfully wicked. Who can know it? The love of God gives us love for other believers, and it drives us together. Look again at 1 John, this time chapter 4. 
Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this is the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So this is the pattern that is demonstrated by how we love each other, that we have indeed loved God. And what flows out of that is what the writer of Hebrews says, that God is not unjust to forget your love and to forget your good works in the love that you have shown towards one another, because in doing that, you honor his name. So the love that you give to God, you are giving towards his name. It means that all the manner of love that we bear for one another is the measure of our love for God. The writer of Hebrews points out that what you're doing as you love each other, you're doing in the name of God. You're doing it for the glory of his name. You're doing it for the declaration of who he is. And Jesus told us on the night that he was betrayed that how we love each other is our testimony of him. John 15, verses 12 and 13 says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, I expect you to love each other in that way. And by the way, this is how I define love. He was very clear about the need for us to love each other indeed. To actively, openly, purposefully love each other. To outwardly love each other. John 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and in that way you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And it's imperative that our actions and our words be of the same material, for they are inextricably linked. We just read in 1 John 3, let us not love in tongue or in word, but in deed and in truth. Because it's very easy to speak of love, but we have to do that which is known as love, in the same manner that our actions must not be tainted with speech that is unloving and unbecoming. It is the same stuff. Your word and your deed must be inextricably linked. They are fashioned of the same material. So the person who speaks swellingly of love but doesn't do it is a liar as much as the person who does some things that are loving but speaks hatefully. Neither of those things is honorable. Both of them must be brought together in the name of Christ. We have to be careful. So you can do nice things for me and then talk badly about me behind my back and stab me in the back with your words and with your tongue. You can gossip about me until the end of the world and that does not by any means make what you're doing honorable and acceptable. So you can do nice things to my face and then drive the knife in when I'm not looking. And that is just as bad as me telling you how much I love you while ignoring your actual needs. You understand that? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 11. I'm going to show you something really cool in this passage. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, 
So the doctrine exists to teach us to minister unto one another. The doctrine exists to train you to be the body of Christ and to edify, to build up, to love one another actively. Reading on, verse 12, Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So let's walk through this together. The doctrine binds us together. The truth of Christ is the central idea of everything that makes us who we are. If you believe wrong things about Christ, you are wrong in every area of your life. This is why there is no commonality between the church of Christ, the the true church, and the false churches that name his name. We need to understand that if you're wrong about who Jesus is, you're wrong about all of it. And you have to be clear about that, and you have to be intentional about that. You have to be honest about that. So the doctrine binds us together. It is excluding those who are not accurate in their understanding of Christ, but it also binds together those who are. Those who honor Christ, those who obey the Scripture, those who understand the truth, are bound together by that doctrine. If you love Jesus, I love you. It's very simple. The saints then engage in the work of the ministry together, edifying the body. That means building the body up. As you guys understand the truth, as you walk in truth, as you are bound together by that truth, it necessarily drives you together for the work of the ministry. Now, we often consider that to be the work of the ministry of the church outside. And that is an important part of it. We can't neglect those who are outside the body by our work of the ministry. But contextually, it also means the work that the body does to be bound together in Christ, and so the ministry that we commit one unto another. So the separations that the world and sin and sorrow and suffering and circumstance want to build into the body to drive us apart, we have to actively seek to fight those things and to be driven together. And the more we love Christ, the more we want to be together. The more we love Christ, the more we want to be bound together. The more we love Christ, the more we want to do together that which honors Him. And that which honors Him is the truth. We grow in grace together as the truth of God has its outworking in the love that we share and show to one another. This is why we speak the truth how? In love. And so the more that we do that, the more that we are bound together in the love that we are sharing and in the love that we are speaking, the more we are growing together in grace, the more the doctrine is being exemplified and honored, the more Christ is being honored, and this matures us and protects us from false doctrine. So if you have a problem with your understanding of Christ, you will have a problem with your understanding of love. And if you have a problem with your understanding of love, you will have a problem with your understanding of truth, which leads to a problem with your understanding of Christ. See how all of this ties together? And if you take any one part of it out, the whole thing falls apart. We have to recognize that the practical application of our love one for another also increases our love for Christ. 
Because as I love you with his love, then I'm learning about his love. How many of you ever heard that the best way to learn something is to teach it? Jared and I had this conversation just last week. The best way to learn something is to be put on the spot and be forced to teach. Well, as you are loving one another, guess what you're doing? You are teaching one another the love of Christ. And as you are teaching one another the love of Christ, what's happening to you? You're growing in the love of Christ. You are learning more and more about the love of Christ. This is why it's so essential that we are bound together as the body. It's why it's so essential that we are pouring ourselves into one another for the sake of Christ. Notice how the truth of God and the love of God are central in this dynamic. We have to understand accurately according to Scripture. And right understanding will always lead to right practice. If your practice is wrong, it's because somewhere your understanding is wrong. And if your understanding is wrong, it will always lead to wrong practice. They cannot be accurately distinguished. You have to recognize this truth and you have to dive into it. This is why this is such a big deal in the scripture. It's why at the very beginning of the church, God ordained the circumstances that forced the church to actively love each other so profoundly. Could God have arranged things so that the people who were saved on the day of Pentecost would have been in their hometown? Sure he could have. He could have sent out a thousand Ethiopian eunuchs to carry the gospel like little seeds to all the different places where they lived. But he didn't. Why? Because he wanted to teach about love. By definition, our selfish natures, our fallen flesh, doesn't love anybody but us. By definition, our fallen flesh only loves us, and by extension, we might tolerate those who give us things. But we can't be said to genuinely love anybody except us. So one of the things that had to fall was that flesh and its inability to love when love hurts. Do you think it was easy for them to sell their stuff and to bring it and give it away and to make sure that people that they didn't know didn't have anything in common with except Jesus could survive? I imagine God made it easier, but I don't think that made it easy. I think to say it was easy cheapens it. Amen? I think there's real sacrifice here. And the real sacrifice that was going on is part of what makes it so exemplary. The real sacrifice that was going on is part of what makes it so profoundly powerful. Say, well, what are you saying? Are you telling me I have to sell everything and give it to the church? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we have to learn how to love. We have to learn how to love in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, in the places where God has planted us. Because just as God could have arranged the New Testament church in some other fashion, He could have arranged your life in some other fashion. But He didn't. Your life is exactly how he has ordained it to be. And it is exactly where it is supposed to be at this moment, which means 
This circumstance that you're living in is your opportunity to show the love of God by how you engage with the body of Christ and how you love the people that God has put into your life who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This set of relationships, this series of people, this is the relationship that matters most in your world according to God. And we need to start acting like it all the time. We need to look at the opportunities that God has given to us. And somebody's going to say to me, but I don't have any big talents and I don't have any big skills and I don't have any big opportunities and I'm just a poor little me who doesn't do anything. Okay. Look at me at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 36. Now at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they'd washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now there's a couple of things remarkable about this account. The first thing is very obvious. There was a woman who died who was much loved and God graciously raised her to life. But underneath that, you have to recognize the reason why she was loved. Why was she loved? Because she herself loved. And she loved in great extravagant sweeps of giving tons and tons of money to everybody that had need. No. She made tunics. She could sew. And so she did. And the scripture tells us that she used the gifts and the talents and the opportunities that were given to her to minister the name of Christ to those in her circle of influence. Now, this is truly profound because her gifts were not all that extraordinary. I I didn't see her handiwork. Maybe she did really fine needlework. I don't know. But that doesn't seem to be the flavor of what we see here. What we see here is that her gift was her willingness to love. That her gift was her willingness to give of herself to those who had need in this small way that God had equipped her to do. 
And I would challenge any of you to say to me with any honesty, I can't do anything. It would be a lie. And you know it. We can all do something. What we really mean when we say, I can't do anything, is I don't really value anything I do. I don't think that anything I do is worth anything. And I would say to you very plainly that when you say such things, you're challenging God. Because he's the one who gave you your abilities and didn't give you others. He's the one who gave you your opportunities and didn't give you others. He's the one who gave you your gifts, your abilities, your desires, and didn't give you a different set of gifts and abilities and desires. I would say to you that whatever you have, you have by the hand of God. And it's dangerous practice to say, God, I don't really like what you've given me. Beloved, understand that the lesson here is that God honored this woman's honoring of him. That she honored God by how she loved. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is driving at. When we love, we honor his name. When we love by whatever means have been given to us. And it's important for us to recognize that the scope of this is both grand and minute. It is both world-changing and life-affirming. You have the opportunity by loving anybody with any opportunity that God puts into your path to do something that alters the world at its core. Because you never know what God is going to do with that seed of love that you plant into somebody's life. It could be an unbeliever, but I want you to pay attention to the truth that the primary place that God calls us to do good works is among the household of faith. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 7. Now, I want to say this carefully, so let's just look at the scripture and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you notice what Paul says? You reap to the flesh, of the flesh you reap corruption. We've already established that the flesh only loves itself. So if you look at your opportunities and say, you know what, that's not going to do me any good. Are you reaping to are you sowing to the flesh? Yeah. If all you're doing is sowing and doing good where, where you think it's going to pay you, you're sowing to the flesh. What the scripture tells us is sow to the spirit and do good as God gives you opportunity. And then he gives this really remarkable statement at the very end of this passage. He says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is contrary to what we're often taught in churches. We're often taught in churches that the only thing that matters is your outward evangelism. 
That if you're not out there gospeling the world, then you're not doing anything of value. And while it's important to spread the gospel, please don't mishear me. What Paul is telling us is that it is as important that we are loving the body. That we are actively engaged in works of service and love and fellowship together with the body of Christ so that we are bound together in Him. Because that is the larger testimony. Because remember, love is very natural to the human soul. Amen? Not at all. Wake up. Love is not natural to the human soul. Love is contrary to the human soul. It is anathema to us. We hate those who love. Just pay attention to the world around us. Those who genuinely love, they're despised by the world. We need to recognize the truth that what God calls us to is to testify to the world that something is different by how we love each other. By how we pour into one another. And yes, there is room for the gospel in that. There is room for us as the body to minister Christ unto those who are outside. And certainly as God gives you opportunity to love those who are outside the body, do it. But do not neglect the opportunities that are within the body just because they're in the body. In fact, you should give preference to them. You should look for those opportunities and you should delight in them and you should say, Lord, thank you for allowing me to love you by loving these people. Now look, you cannot practically do this isolated from the body. Okay? You cannot practically love if you do not have any opportunity to rub up against people and know where they need love. Life happens in a place and in a manner where those opportunities are not necessarily telegraphed. You have to take advantage of the opportunities that we have to be the body. To grow together in grace. It is incredibly important. God notices those who care for those who he loves. Do you recognize that principle? Look, you want to get my attention? Do something good for my family. I'm going to notice that. Amen? Take care of the people that I love. You'll get my attention. I promise you it works the same with God. When you lavish love upon his child, he notices. Philemon says in verses 4 and following, it says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, my brother. So Paul noticed. You think God didn't notice? You think Paul is better than God? Absolutely not. Paul noticed and he gave thanks for it as Philemon poured out his life into the body. Look at Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. 
Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed for Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all of your need, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to pay attention to how Paul puts this, because it's really a remarkable balancing act. He's jealous for the gift that the Philippian church is sending to help. But he's not jealous for it because he wants it. He's jealous for it because he wants them to receive the reward that comes from giving it. In this particular instance, he's talking about monetary aid to help with the work that's going on. But the principle applies across the board. I'm jealous that you get this truth so that your life might be blessed by God for the manner in which you love his people and by loving his people, you get his attention and you please him and honor him. I'm jealous for you that you would receive the rewards that come from loving people that are loved by God because God will surely repay according to his ability. There is never a time where God will not. It might take a while, But you can take heart in that because when it takes a while, it just means interest is accruing. God will repay. And God will make certain that those who love his people are themselves beloved. Do you feel isolated? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like God's distant, like the people around you are distant, like you're not sure who you are or where you are or what's going on in the world in any way? Let me tell you that the secret is to dive in and to press in and to cling tight and to love with everything you have in you. And by doing that, you will find that God increases your attachment and the love that you know and experience. If you're feeling depleted, it's because you're not loving. Press in and love. Dive in with everything you have in you and find God restoring to you far more than you ever put out. Find God restoring to you far more than you ever give. Because in the end, we also have to learn the flip side of this. Many people in this, in this room are great givers. Not so many are great receivers. It hurts our pride. It wounds us to have to receive something from somebody. Oh, I don't want to do that. Don't, don't go out of your way on my account. Fooey. Fooey. You have to learn to receive as well. 
if, if you think for one minute that you have the ability to make it on your own without help from anybody, oh my, you got another thing coming. Because none of us can. And incidentally, that's a lesson that God will absolutely teach you. Because it has roots in the pride that separates you from Him. We have to learn to receive. We have to learn to give. We have to learn both sides of this coin. And we have to do it in such a way that we're giving our hearts and our minds and our attention to God Because that's why God has given you what he has given you. That's why you have the material goods that you have. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us to do work with our hands. Let those who stole steal no longer, but let them labor with their hands, doing what is good. For what reason? Anybody know the rest of the verse? That they may have something to give to those who are in need. So Ephesians 4 tells us that the reason that we work is so we will have something to give. That's a good basis for your economics. That's a good basis for how you treat with your money, how you think about your money. But beyond that, it's a good basis for how you think about your abilities because that's really the heart of what I'm talking about this morning. I'm not just talking about your stuff. I'm not concerned about your stuff. God is faithful. He's taking care of us. He's taking care of the church. He's taking care of everything that he needs to take care of. I'm not concerned about your stuff. I'm concerned about your blessing. I'm concerned about your heart. I'm concerned about the attitude with which you deal with this question, which is, how do you love? Why do you love? What is it that God is calling you towards? He's calling us to walk in unity. He's calling us to walk in a manner of love that actually shows out into the world. It means visiting the sick. Visiting people in jail, particularly when they start jailing people for the sake of the truth. It means giving of your time to to be alongside the body where somebody's in need. It means giving of yourself to just be present. Remember that Hebrews 10 tells us that the reason why we gather together in worship is not so that we're fed, contrary to why everybody leaves the church every place. I just wasn't being fed. That's not a good reason. Because the scripture tells us that we're not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren, giving mind to one another, so that you are thinking about the others that are there, so that you're pouring into their lives. Church is supposed to be an outpouring, not an intaking. Now, because God's economics always work the same way across the board, when you're pouring out, guess what's happening? You're taking in far more than you ever put out. That's always true. God's economics always work this way. The fact of the matter is, God calls us to love extravagantly because the more you pour out, the more you make room in your life to receive the extravagant love that He's pouring into you. If you look at the things that you have and the circumstances in your life and the relationships in your life and you say, ha ha, my cup is full. I don't want any more. Well, you're missing the best part because the best part of it is when your cup runneth over. When you drink from the saucer. 
or you lap it up from the table or the floor. The best part of it is when God gives you more than you know how to take in. And He will. But if you look at the tiny little smidgen that you have and say, I don't want any more, what are you going to do if He listens? What are you going to do if He looks at that and goes, okay, that's all you want? I guess that's all I'll give. By public declaration, when you give of yourself, you're begging God to give you more. You're begging God to pour into you to make full what you've just given away. And please don't mishear me. I'm not talking about your money. I'm not talking about your stuff. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about how you love. And I'm talking about the reality that God calls us to live out this kind of love. There are literally a million things that we can do which demonstrate love for the people of God. And every single one of them should be done as often as you have opportunity and as God grants you ability to do it even in the smallest way. Be looking for ways to love the body. Be looking for ways to be investing in the body of Christ. How we live this out is crucially important. Remember that the past works alone are not the whole picture. The writer of Hebrews says that you have loved the saints and that you do love the saints. But I want to show you something really cool here before we wrap this up. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 11, he says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he just said in verse 10. God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints, and that you do minister to the saints. And then where does he look? He looks forward. He says, We desire that each one of you shows the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. In other words, your past love and your present ministry add up to a future hope for your life and for your soul. Not that you are earning your salvation. Do not mishear me. But it does add up to assurance. And how many of us need a little more of that. How many of us recognize that if we live our lives in a way that is contrary to Scripture, the thing that we reap out of that is misery? So if you want to avoid some of that misery and you want to alleviate some of that misery that may already be present in your life, then take this to heart and love extravagantly as God gives you opportunity. And here's what I promise you. I promise you two things. I promise you, first of all, the more that you do this, the more you're going to see opportunities. And I promise you that the more that you do this and the more that you see opportunities, the more that you're going to find the full assurance of hope into the end. It will alleviate that which is plaguing you. I promise. But more than I promise, God's Word promises it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day to understand the dynamic of your economics of love. I pray, God, that you would make us mindful of the fact that you call us to love with this extravagant heart 
And that you tell us in your word that as we do this, you pour back into us far more than we ever poured out. God, teach us to love. Teach us to obey. Teach us to honor you. Teach us to be a people who love the body of Christ because it is the body of Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus for his glory alone. Amen.